Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. Except today, we're setting aside the news of the week to do a very special podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into the state of the Affordable Care Act in the age of Trump. We're taping on Monday, April 2nd this week, though you won't get this podcast until our regular Thursday time. And a quick shout out to my Michigan Wolverines in the NCAA championship game tonight. Win or lose, it's been a great season. Okay, back to business. Here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hi there. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. So here's how we're going to do this. For those of you who weren't paying attention or who were paying attention but forgot, we're going to start with a quick review of what happened when. I actually assembled a timeline to remind myself of that order, and I have to say it was a lot in a fairly short period of time. Then we'll go back and talk about each of the major players in this drama, Congress, President Trump and his administration, insurance companies and the rest of the health industry, and not least the public. So let's begin by going around the table. Who thought the ACA would still be alive and kicking in the spring of 2018? And is the health law really here to stay or is its future in doubt? Joanne. I don't know when you mean when. I mean, you mean Election Day of 2016 that night? Yeah, I thought it would be repealed or or more repealed than it is. And it is alive, but I don't think it's kicking so much as it's alive and limping. It is alive. It's moving ahead, but not in the form that its uh, backers had hoped. Alice? Uh, I agree. And I think that it was only when Congress started its attempts that it was clear that they were not ready for prime time, even though they had years and years of campaigning on this. The repeal was not ready for prime time. Exactly. Exactly. They had no unified vision of of what they wanted. They had not worked out all their internal disagreements. Uh, They had not uh, gotten (laughs) scores that that were acceptable. Um, So uh, the the wheels came off the car pretty early. (laughs) Margot? I always decline to predict anything political because I'm always wrong. Um, I think in this case, I had some worries about the Affordable Care Act, but I felt like I, I sort of saw a little bit of what Alice was talking about right from the start, that it just seemed like even though there was a lot of agreement that the Affordable Care Act was bad among Republicans, there was not a lot of agreement about what would be better. And I just didn't quite see how they were going to reach consensus. Although I will say that there were many times along the way as votes got closer and, you know, it started to look like various things were going to pass that I started to feel uncertain again. But I think sort of around the time of the election, I thought this is a serious threat, but I think it will be a real challenge for Republicans to try to dismantle it through legislation. I actually wrote a story in 2014 about the Republican disagreements about why they had not until then even come up with a with a plan. So I was always a little bit dubious of their ability to to reach consensus because I know sort of the the ideological fissures among the Republicans about about health care, even starting. Um, but yeah, I'm like, Margot, I don't predict anymore. No, but the, the, on election night, you know, in addition to everything else going through everybody's minds, I mean, what was what was so astonishing, I mean, I saw the problems you all identified and I saw by January, I saw they were going to be in trouble. But on election night, it is, going back to that night, it's amazing that they didn't repeal it because <laughs> they won 
They won big. They won the presidency. They won the House. They won the Senate. They won, you know, reasonably good margins. And this was not, this was so important to their base. We've been doing polling, and Kaiser just polling, political has been doing polling um, with the Harvard School of Public Health for the last year and a half. I mean, the base, boy, do they want it repealed. They still want it repealed. And this was not just a campaign promise. This was part of the Republican sort of it or whatever by then. You know, it would have been something, it was part of their identity. It was something they'd been promising and promising. And it was the imperative, you know, root and branch, get rid of it. it. They had promised it right, you know, constantly for eight years. The fact that they didn't is, is really sort of an astonishing political story. Well, I want to actually, Joanne is sort of feeding right into where I wanted to go next, because I want to sort of start with this review. And I want to go back to before election night, to the fall of 2016. Um, it was then a long time it ago. It was a long time. Doesn't it feel like it was a thousand <laughs> <Decades>. years ago? <laughs> then candidate Trump and candidate Mike Pence went to campaign in Pennsylvania, and they got a huge rise out of the audience, just as you were saying, uh, Joanne, by calling out some of the big premium creases that had just been announced. So what was going on with the ACA in the fall? Fall of 2016. It was it was not looking great, right? Yeah, the fall of 2016, I would say, was sort of one of the most rocky moments uh, for the ACA. So across the country, there were these really substantial increases in the price of premiums. There was the withdrawal of several major insurers from major markets. And there was a sense that things were not on a good or sustainable trajectory. It looks like now we have more information. We sort of know what was going on. It looks like it was essentially what could have been a one-time correction from some mistakes that the insurers made in the early years. Like charging too little in a lot of places. Charging too little. Pricing too low. But we didn't really know that yet. I mean, there were some indications of it. But I think there was a general sense that this was a huge price increase. It was right on the eve of a big election and that there was going to have to be some kind of political solution to it after the election. One thing that I will say, and I think this became important again as we got into the heat of the legislative debate, but I think it is worth noting what this what how this was working out before the election. I do not think that Obamacare was a huge priority for President Trump as a campaigner. I think it was he said almost every time he spoke in public, he did say that he wanted to repeal and replace or just repeal the Affordable Care Act. I think it was sort of a standard checkbox kind of talking point that he had to include in his speeches. But if you listen to the way that he talked about the issues, there were many other issues that animated him much more, that he went into more detail, that he seemed more impassioned about. And it actually was only after the election that he identified Obamacare as a top legislative priority. But I think at at the time you're talking about in November, there was there was some capitalizing on these high premiums, but there still didn't really feel like there was a big political focus by Trump or Pence on Obamacare as a top issue. But there was the last 10 days. I remember that rally really well because we hadn't been in Marcus right. We had not been hearing except for the, you know, the standard y'all repeal it check, you know, on my bullet list. But that rally was all about Obamacare. And that rally was and both about... both of them, both Trump right, and then and, Pence. Pence yeah. right. And it was about 10, 12 days before the election. It was late October. And it was just when these high, high premiums were sort of permeating the public consciousness and coming out. And enrollment was just about to start. And they, they, I mean, I think Trump and, you know, he has very good political instincts. He saw it and he ran with it and he got over the top. You know, whether he would have won without you know, who knows? But that became a real clarion call at the very end of the elections. And I think he, he ran with it then. And we really noticed it for exactly what, what you said. I mean, all of a sudden, it was like, 
know, th- this was front and center and, and it worked for him. And the driving obsession of the Trump campaign and, and then the administration has been undoing everything President Obama did, this being one of the biggest. <laughs> the top thing, the yes. one that has Obama's name right. on it. And so even though his his health policy, if it exists, is all over the place and he's even sort of endorsed what sounds like universal coverage and all kinds of things, um, definitely undoing the legacy of the previous president has been the animating force. All right. So tr- so Trump gets elected, vows to repeal the ACA and replace it with, I believe the quote was, something terrific. Uh, terrific care. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, the Republican Congress actually thought it might be able to pass a bill between the time they took over on January 3rd and January 20th, when Trump was inaugurated. What were they thinking? Well, they remember there was that talk about the special section, session. Trump didn't understand that there wasn't. You didn't need a special session because Congress was actually in regular session. But yeah, they they were talking slam dunk. Now remember, they were not talking about, and this was one of the fissures we referred to. They were not talking about repealing the entire thing because they couldn't under these bizarre Senate budget rules called reconciliation. We'll spare you all the details. But I did limits, a video. I'll post right. a link to my okay. reconciliation. Basically, video. under the rules of this reconciliation thing, you could not get rid of absolutely everything. You would have had to. They talked about having three buckets. They would have repeal as much. Of it is prongs. It was prongs. They buckets. took buckets. <laughs> buckets. <laughs> so they, it's it's way easier to do don't, it. Don't, don't, don't waste a great metaphor. <laughs> Paul Ryan had buckets. I remember. So they they were going to do some of it with a big chunk of it through this reconciliation. They would do other pieces of it through smaller bills, separate bills like the across the state lines and some of the market regulation, and the rest would be done with regulation, which I'm sure Julie will bring us back to I because will. regulation, in fact, is where we are now. So they were talking about doing it by January 20th. He was going to sign it the first day. Remember, he was going to you know, take the oath of office with one hand and take his, his sign the ACA repeal basically with the other. And they were, they were going to do this bill, this the, the test bill from 2015, right? Right. Yes. And so a couple of things became clear really early. One was that the rank and file was not buying the bucket thing. They were like, there is no three buckets. You basically get one shot. We're never going to do the full root and branch repeal with 60 votes in the Senate. It's just not happening, so we have to... Because they didn't have 60 votes. Exactly. And so they were like, we want they, everything... They didn't have 51 as, we as want it turned one out. one bucket. <laughs> we want everything in one fell swoop. Um, so that, that was one issue, is that they were like, we're not going to take your word that stuff can happen later in, in subsequent phases. And the other issue was that they promised two things that were in conflict from the very beginning. They promised we're going to repeal every single word of Obamacare, but we're going to keep all the parts that you like and they're really popular and people with pre-existing conditions will be protected. And kids up to age 26. And kids up to age 26 and blah, 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 and gender discrimination. So don't worry about those things. And those those are in conflict, obviously. <laughs> so, all right. So the House eventually gets going, but not in January and not in February either, as it turned out. What was the biggest holdup in the Republicans actually getting unity? Was it because of the numbers or did they just never figure out the right combination of policies? I mean, were they never going to do it because it was so hard to get 51 votes or, it, it was or did they just not come up with the right thing? It was well, a combination of them. Margo, you well, just the first time around, I think it's important to realize that Paul Ryan was just really trying to pass this bill through the House. So whether or not they had had 51 votes in the Senate. I think actually the more this developed, the less he cared about it. I think he was the one who had sold Donald Trump on the idea that Obamacare repeal should be the first thing. And it would have been a big humiliation for him if they had not passed something through the House. So I think very quickly he dropped any concerns about something that could pass the Senate and thought, we just have to pass something. And that will put pressure on the Senate to either pass something else or to bring us back something that we can get through our caucus. So 
Um, I think the real problem, and this became the enduring problem throughout this entire process, was that Republicans in the House, and, and it turned out Republicans in the Senate, didn't really agree on what the most important goals were, on how to balance the very real trade-offs that came from making the kinds of changes that they wanted to make. And they also sort of disagreed, I think, fundamentally about what the role of government was in ensuring and providing health care, what health insurance should look like, how much, how many dollars the federal government should spend on these programs, and what kind of message they could take to their constituents back home. And so you saw this attempt to build a bill that was not like the bill they had passed several years ago when they knew it had no chance of becoming law. That was something that was actually much more complex. Paul Ryan had put out this white paper several years before. They were trying to figure out, OK, we're still going to give people subsidies to buy insurance, but it's going to be a different formula. We're still going to have Medicaid, but we're going to change the structure of it. We're still going to have some insurance regulations, but not other ones. They had these complications with the budget process that made that part even more complex. But as they started to craft this new thing, the I think Overall, Republicans had to contend with, okay, we can all agree on repeal, but a bald repeal that just rips everything away and leaves everyone who got something from Obamacare with nothing is politically untenable. So now we have to come up with replace. And there actually just was not a broad consensus on what that should look like. At that point, something like 20 million people. Am I remember the number right? It was something like 20 million people were covered one way or another through through uh, yeah, the exchanges or the Medicaid. Medicaid, right. Medicaid so like the idea of taking 20, you know, I, we promise to give you something better, but we don't know what it is. And you have 20 million people who are covered who are feeling you know, anxious. So you had, much as anxious, like panicked. And then you had you know, this, this split between the politics, you know, the far right who wanted you know, the heritage-fueled repeal every word versus like, no, we repeal as much as we can, and then we'll take on the rest later. So there were all this stuff. Up. But basically, the other thing that happened was, lo and behold... Who knew the Democrats got organized <laughs> and the town meeting started. And what happened was what caught the public imagination and what caught the public concern and what really animated the at that point, because it changed later, was pre-existing conditions. There's a gut feeling in the American public that that's not fair. And it's across party lines. More Democrats, but there are Republicans who feel this way, too. Like, it's really not your fault. Like, if you get sick and you can't get insurance anymore, something is off. And that became the animating uh, and that concerned the, 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 the Republican moderates who got cold feet. I called them the cold feet caucus. The, um, <laughs> the um, you know, that became a political, huge political impediment in the House and why and it took so many months in the I House. I want to talk for about the impact of the Congressional Budget Office, which it seems incredibly inside. But I think in this debate, it really was incredibly pivotal. I was just so struck um, that uh, at the across the board effort to preemptively undermine <laughs> the Congressional Budget Office before they came out with even one score of one health care bill, Republicans had their talking points saying they're they're wrong. They were so wrong about um, the original number of people who would be covered under Obamacare. They can't be trusted. So when they come out and tell you that our bill is going to leave all these people uninsured, don't believe them. And, and, and yet the, the Congressional Budget Office director is appointed by Republicans when they're exactly. in charge. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And so... Actually, it was by Tom Price, who had right, then become right, the HHS secretary. Right, he delegated was, by the... He was the chairman right. of the budget committee. And then when the scores started coming out, they tried to have it both ways. And they tried to say, oh, look at this great score about how much billion, hundreds of billions of dollars we're going to save. Oh, but don't look over here. That's wrong. That's inaccurate. Where they say that we're, that tens of millions of people yes. will no longer have insurance. I think, yes. they say, I think, if I remember correctly, it was $14 million the first year and $24 million over... 
a decade or something? It, well, it, I mean, it, it varied. It was the in the 30s. One, the first one, for, which is what yeah. made the headline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was 24 million, I think. And, yeah. and I may be one of you may I think remember. The first one, I think the first one was actually, the first thing, this was, you were talking about the Democrats mm-hmm. getting their act together. The Democrats asked the CBO to rescore the bill from 2015, the bill that, the right. test bill that they passed thinking, if we ever took over, this is what we could pass. And as it turned out, they couldn't pass that. <laughs> but what started out their inability to pass that was the Democrats asking for the CBO score, and that was the one where they said it might have been thirty-two 31. million. Yeah, right. it was in the, it was that, that was abolishing was, the mandate over right, right. Mm-hmm. the and, actual bill that has and I believe bill, I think, and was also 24. abolishing the Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. I think that was what made that lots whatever it was. Yeah, and it, it was, never got better. Right. Well, it got it got slightly better, but it never, it never got, got better got enough. Right. <laughs> but the general, I think I think it was a strong early sign of what has become a huge theme under the Trump administration, which is un- undermining and discre- attempts to undermine and discredit any independent scorekeeper yeah, right. or referee, including the press. That's right. That's Yeah, ref- referees are bad and, and it's all fake news. Just believe your leader. Oh, I think they were un- what they were unsuccessful in doing, though, is convincing us to not care about what the CBO said. Like, I think in our modern political life, the CBO is an unusual institution in that it is seen as sort of serious and nonpartisan in its analysis. And yes, it is true that the CBO has been wrong before. They have a really difficult job and they've made mistakes of various sorts. And, you know, we've written about them. But I think almost all news reporters feel like the CBO are a bunch of serious, experienced people who are trying their hardest to get to the right answer. And if they're making a mistake, it's not because of a political bias. It's because things are hard to predict or their model is a little wonky or whatever. And so and healthcare in particular is hard to predict. So, you know, there would have always been, I think, this sort of fighting and clamoring about what are the results of this bill where the Democrats would say one thing and the Republicans will say another. But the CBO came out with these numbers. The numbers were quite bad for all the different versions of the bill. And all of us told readers, this is our best guess. This is the this is the best source that we have for reliable information about what this would mean. And so what it meant is that the public, despite the Trump's administrations to discredit it, really saw the CBO numbers again and again during this debate. And, and it had a huge impact because it w- they were big numbers. And I remember in our newsroom, it wasn't just the health people waiting for the CBO and reacting and saying, what does the CBO say? And, and saying, oh, wow. It was like the whole newsroom. It was like, oh, 24 million or 30 million, whatever. It was like, oh, it was a, it had an immediate impact. It was a big number. And we understood the political importance of that number. And I, it I th- wasn't just inside the beltway. People understand what 24 or 30 million people losing insurances. They understand there's a lot of zeros with, that come with those numbers. And I think, you know, even if you want to quibble about their methodology or what the actual number is, I think it was not that hard for the public to grasp that if you take away something that you've been giving to people, they won't have it anymore. <laughs> that, that, Spoiler alert. That deep part of it, I think, was part of what, you know, what had the impact. So so, so let's move on to the Senate. So the House finally muscles it through. But ba- I mean, it was they, yeah. they pulled it. I mean, it was yeah, not right. an easy, it was a real struggle. It took yes. until May, I think it was May 4th or 5th. Yeah, it was May 4th. And it took months. It took False starts. Yes, yeah. of, of embarrassing collapses. Right. They, they had it on the floor in March and had to pull it. Had to go, you know, Paul Ryan had to go to the White House and, and say, I can't do it. Yeah. And um, it was, it, it was, you know, it, it was not, it was not easy getting it through the House. It squeaked through the House and um, a lot of political damage internally. And it's for this one brief moment we saw moderates with power, although that didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> so so the Senate does does finally 
um, well, the Senate finally punts. The, and then, you know, the Senate went through the House. They had it on the floor a couple of different times. They kept saying, we're going to do it before, pick the next recess. <laughs> you know, Memorial Day, that didn't happen. Fourth of July, in the end, that didn't happen. The August recess, that was where we finally saw the famous, you know, John McCain thumbs down at two in the morning. Was the Senate you know, I asked the same question I asked at the beginning. Was there a combination of things that could have gotten through the Senate or was the Senate just never going to be able to pull the trigger on this? By that point, they couldn't pull the trigger. I mean, had the House, had there not, had all the things we've just, had it, had it sailed through the House in January or February with a different political, with unified Republicans and without the town hall movement going on, you know, if it had been a slam dunk in the House, it would have come into the Senate with momentum. It would have changed in the Senate, but it would have been a different scenario. But at that point, I mean... No, <laughs> but but the dynamic was if it was political, if it was pre-existing conditions that really sunk it in the House, in the Senate it was Medicaid. I, that's what I was just going to say. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that was sort of a sleeper issue. I mean, but it who's- was. I think that in the Senate, it is really worth noting. It was genuinely unpredictable. I mean, this was yes. a razor's edge vote, yeah. where the deciding vote was someone who had essentially towed the party line on health care for many decades. You know, John McCain is not someone who is a strong advocate for the Affordable Care Act. And in fact, even in the weeks leading up to this final vote, his objections to the bill were largely not substantive. They were, they were more yeah. about process, that he felt that the that the bill was rushed, that they weren't doing the normal things that they did, that there wasn't enough debate and deliberation, and that he wanted to sort of slow things down and do them by the book. But, you know, the idea that this big push. You know, it had gotten through the House. Republicans had campaigned on it for seven years and that it would basically be stopped by someone who was saying, like, I really think we should have had some more committee markups. Like, (laughs) that is an extraordinary and unpredictable thing. There was also a Medicaid dynamic in in Arizona, his state. And although the governor at the last minute did endorse that final bill, he never the, the final Senate bill. The, the governor, repeal? yeah, the, the governor finally did say it was okay. But I mean, there had been a lot of concern, including among Republicans in Arizona, about Medicaid and and coverage for low income people, and that did affect um, McCain. However, I, I mean, I, I've covered McCain for years, and I, I think that there was a larger dynamic that was way beyond health care. He was sick. He knows how sick he is. He came back to the Senate that week after his cancer treatment, his brain cancer treatment. He gave that speech about the Senate as an institution. I mean, it was very much a McCain versus Trump dynamic. It was him sort of pleading his, you know, pleading with the Senate, act like the Senate that I once knew and loved. And the health vote was sort of the vehicle for that larger institutional Senate. It was more than just a markup. It was sort of about the functioning of the Senate. I agree with Marco. It wasn't just, it was, it was pro, pro, it wasn't just about process, though. It was what process means in terms of how the Senate functions. It wasn't just, I wanted a markup. He wanted, he was saying, I want the, I want my Senate back. Mm-hmm. So, Alice, and, talk a little bit, yeah, about yeah. Medicaid and about the role of the governors in this whole thing, the sure. Republican governors. Sure. They, they weighed in strongly. They came out of the woodwork and, and said, uh, this will be damaging to hundreds of thousands of people in our state. And there were, there were different versions and the different bills about what would happen to the Medicaid expansion. It would be frozen at some point, and it would be rolled back, it would be cut back, and then I I guess we're going to get to Graham-Cassidy later, which would do this whole other block-granting thing. Um, But yes, that was a huge concern, and like you said, the town halls became just very organized and very vocal and put a lot of pressure 
uh, especially on the people who are up for re-election this year. And, uh, Very telegenic. I mean, we saw Congress people mm-hmm. running out the back door of these meetings. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 the pu- and the public learned what Medicaid is, which I think had yes, really – or the importance of Medicaid. And the, and the reputation, and it really – showed that it has gone from being something sort of stigmatized for the very poor to something very normalized and something that covers a broad swath of society. And there's just an understanding that probably someone you know is on Medicaid and this is a program that's worth defending. That was actually... So I've written about this over the last few years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, going back, I think, to maybe 2012, 2014, the polling on Medicaid has always been remarkably strong and positive. A very large majority of Americans either have used Medicaid themselves or have a friend or family member who has. The approval rating of Medicaid is remarkably high, low only by comparison to Medicare, which is basically like the most popular government program ever. I think this was more about actually educating the Washington elites about the way that the public felt about Medicaid Mm -hmm. than it was about unleashing some new public awareness of the value of the program. I mean, some of both was happening, but I think it was sort of there were a lot of people out there in the country who relied on Medicaid, who understood its value, who were worried about the future of Medicaid, and they were sort of activated. And then that got the attention of all of the people who felt like Medicaid wasn't a politically powerful program in the way that Medicare the one, I think it had to do. I think that word activated is the key word, Marco, because Medicaid had been showing popularity in the polls, but it wasn't something that vote, people voted on. It wasn't, I mean, unlike Medicare, where, you know, Congress people hear, you know, from constituents about Medicare, they don't hear until last year. They didn't hear about Medicaid on the same scale. It wasn't a political going to the polls issue. It wasn't a campaign issue to the extent it was. Now, personally, I'm, n- I'm not entirely sure that the people who answer polls saying how much they love Medicaid, I'm not sure how many of them really understand the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. And I've asked a few pollsters and <laughs> they couldn't tell me. But anyway, it did. It became a political. It became it, it entered the political arena last year I think in a way that we had never seen. Yeah, I think one of the things is it caught Republicans flat-footed because their talking point had always been, you know, our base doesn't like Medicaid. It's for poor people. Um, you know, <laughs> we hate Medicaid. We want to make the whole thing go away. And I think Republicans were kind of surprised to find out that there were Republicans who strongly supported Medicaid. And that, I think, turned and into... And there was some really effective yeah. lobbying. I mean, Medicaid, the, the disabled kids and their parents were... Yeah. It's not just... It was poor people, but it was disa- it's disabled children. It's the grandparents in the nursing home. I mean, the Medicaid is really big. And it does cover, you know, as we've all said, it covers, what is the number, 70 million? million There's also just a mechanical thing, which is that Medicaid, unlike Medicare, Medicaid runs through state budgets. So it is a really important part of the budget of every state, whether they have expanded or not expanded. And so if you're a governor in almost any state, and you look at the possibility that the amount of federal dollars you're going to get for your Medicaid program is going to diminish, that is a huge political and fiscal problem for you and your state. And I think that's why, as Alice said, so many governors, including Republican governors, came out and said, whoa, I don't want this on my back. I don't want to have to make these tough decisions about you know, either raising taxes, cutting public education, or kicking people off Medicaid. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, the feds want to like, do their thing over to the side. That's fine. But a lot of what these formula changes in these bills would have done is they would have essentially reduced the amount of money coming from the federal government to the states. And that would have made it harder for the states to continue to offer the same level of services. And it allowed Republicans in Washington to say, like, we're not requiring that anyone lose their Medicaid benefits. But the natural consequence was that it was sort of kicking all of those difficult decisions down to the states where the the governors and the state legislatures were going to have to make the difficult decisions. And also to the hospitals that were going to lose a lot of money. And hospitals are politically powerful in almost every congressional district in the country. Although I I will say that towards 
towards the very end of this debate, you had the entire health industry, and we talked about this at the time, um, that the entire health industry united in saying, don't pass this bill. But they were also irrelevant. Yeah. Congress came really, really, really close to passing it anyway. All right. But I want to step back for a second. The entire time Congress was doing its will they or won't they thing, President Trump kept threatening to pull federal funding for the cost sharing reductions. Um, Can we I'd like to to not get into the weeds too much in this, but somebody please explain exactly what the cost sharing reductions are in 20 seconds or less. I feel like Joanne has gotten the most efficient at this. (laughs) I'll drop it really quickly. Basically, there's subsidies that help. There's two kinds of subsidies. There's subsidies that people can get to buy their health insurance, their premiums. And then for lower income people who are in the exchange up to 250% of poverty, they're this extra cash that help you pay your doctor's bills or your hospital bills or whatever. They're help sharing your costs. Um, They were never appropriated. There was a court battle. The White House under Obama kept paying them. Trump for months threatened to pull them. It created that uncertainty sent some of the insurers fleeing. Which is my next question. <laughs> and Trump finally pulled them in uh, October, October, but the entire world didn't actually collapse. Well, we, which, which we'll get to. That's, uh, we're, we're walking that way. So, so obviously the uncertainty had a big impact on insurers' decisions about whether and where to offer coverage um, for this year, for 2018. We're talking last summer. Uh, in, in fact, most of the big for-profit insurers either had already dropped out or, you know, said they would, cited the uncertainty. And they cited the CSR. The, right. The and they cited the, specifically right, at the, their the quarterly issue, meetings right, and so was, forth. They were they were telling investors it's because, I mean, they, it may not have been, the, it was not the only reason, but they were publicly saying this uncertainty about these cost-sharing subsidies is, is, I'm heading for the doors. So given all the uncertainty of last summer and all the craziness of, you know, what's going to happen, um, the the... The market this year is actually not that bad, and there's a fair number of people in it. How, how big a surprise? This is a big surprise to me. This is maybe the biggest surprise to me is the how strong, strong enrollment. Strong, both strong enrollment and the fact that there's a, there is a plan in every market, which we were not at all sure was going to happen. And we're not sure it'll happen next year, although we'll at the end of the day, that. I think they will. But. Um, right. Um, all right, so so Congress actually, as as Alice pointed out, had had one last ditch effort to to <laughs> repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, and that didn't happen either. Nope. And on October first, didn't even vote. On October first, their 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 time to do their budget reconciliation bill. Uh, uh, basically ran out. And then President Trump, as we said, followed through on his promise to stop the CSR payments just, you know, two weeks before the beginning of open enrollment. Yet states managed to cope. What the heck happened there? I mean, everybody said if he pulled the CSRs, the whole market would collapse. The market did not collapse. I think we've seen remarkable creativity and flexibility by state insurance commissioners and insurers. You know, I think that if Trump had made this taken this action earlier in the year and said, you know, basically sent a you know, big flashing light to the insurers, like, I'm not going to support you. I don't want you to succeed in this market, that they might have said, you know, there's probably like other lines of business that we could be in that might be a little bit less risky and a little bit less hostile to us. But in some ways, because he waited until the last minute, they were all kind of ready to go for the next year. And so what they did instead of departing was they started shifting around their premiums to try to figure out a way to make up for the money that they were going to lose from the federal government for these cost-sharing reduction payments going away without 
really hurting consumers very much. And the way that they did this was somewhat complicated, but I think the simplest way of describing it is that they took one plan and they put all the extra cost on that plan. So if you were buying that plan, the price went way up. And I think the average price was like in the mid-20% increase for that plan. But what they did for all the other plans is they basically left them alone. And because of the overall policy uncertainty, there, those were also substantial increases, double-digit increases in most parts of the country, although not all. But they were essentially able to mitigate the impact of these subsidies going away. And there was a weird thing that happened as a result, which is that many customers actually ended up not just no worse off, but a little bit better off, where their subsidy that they got to buy their insurance could premium buy them. subsidy. Yeah, their premium subsidy actually ended up getting a little bit more generous. And again, that had to do with the distribution of how the prices were changed. They changed them on this one plan. The one plan was the one that the premium subsidies were based on. And so if you bought any other plan, you could sort of take more dollars with you. And so so what we saw around the country is that a lot of people were eligible for free or close to free bronze plans that had very high deductibles. And then there were a lot of people who, for the same price as the silver plan, which has historically been the most popular plan, they could buy what's called a gold plan, which was a plan with a much lower deductible. And so I think that adjustment allowed the markets to remain relatively robust. But there, are, I think... The jury is a little bit still out on how good these markets are going to look. There are a lot of people who buy individual insurance who don't buy through the exchange. They buy insurance directly from a broker or from the insurance company itself. And those are people who don't get subsidies. And while they could kind of pick their way around and find plans that didn't have these huge price increases, they were still dealing with the substantial double-digit increases on the other plans. The sense that maybe Obamacare was like not going to be around or the same in the future, they were getting signals from the White House that maybe there would be new options for them. And let's remember that the, this population was also coming off the 2016 year that we talked about where they'd already faced you know a 20% increase in their premiums. So we don't really know how many of those people have bought plans or stuck around. I think I think it's going to be a little while to know how good this individual market looks. And we don't have final enrollment. We thought we were going to get them in the end of March from HHS. Um, we're talking on Monday, and we're going to, this I believe airs on Thursday. Thursday, and this is something that could change as we could get the actual final count of who enrolled in the exchanges this year. We do expect a drop from uh, last year, but we don't expect a, you know, a, a bottom, you know, a huge, the bottom we, we expect out, yeah. a dip, yeah. but not a, not a catastrophic. That's what we, I mean, enrollment was higher than we anticipated because the other thing we haven't mentioned is they didn't do a lot of outreach and they didn't do, you know, the Obama people were really out there trying to get people to sign up. The Trump people were not. Enrollment was still strong. Um, there's always some drop off between the initial sign and they, period and they who cut pays. the money for the outreach. Right, too. right. Yeah. And, and we don't know the should, exact number, but we I don't we don't we're not expecting it to be way lower, probably you know a million or so maybe, and we don't really know. I think the Democrats uh, in the Obama administration should get some credit though. For all of these years, there have been these criticisms that they built this kind of rickety, unsustainable, needlessly complex system, and I think you know some of those criticisms are true. But it also turned out to be, I think, much more durable. Um, in the face of adversity than anyone would have expected. So, you know, even if all the things that I said 
have gone wrong, I think it is still reasonable to think at this point that there is going to be some kind of individual market in every part of the country going forward. People who have subsidies are going to be able to get reasonably affordable plans and that a lot of the kind of basic architecture is going to stay in place. Well, it, that- may, it, may be, it may be less good and we could talk about it more, but I do think that you know credit should go for kind of building a system where the subsidies were going to naturally increase to deal with increases in prices and where the number of subsidized customers was large enough that it would be attractive for at least one insurer to want to participate everywhere. Well, and that, of course, leads straight into our next event. The next thing, big thing that happened is that Congress repealed the penalties for not having insurance as part of the tax bill. Now, if you'd and said... Then, and McCain years, voted right, for that. Yes, he did. So did Susan Collins, <laughs> right. who, who who got a deal to, to vote on two stabilization bills that have not happened yet. Um, but... Everybody, if you'd said two years ago that they were going to basically effectively end the individual mandate, I think most people would have said the market will collapse, yeah. right? And now most people are thinking, you know, that that the the market is more resilient than we realize because of the subsidies. Right. There are people in America who are getting insured at a reasonable cost now who could not before, and that is a fact. And whether you want, we you know, on the left, and you want to go to single payer, you're right and you want to tear this apart, there is there is a fact that there are millions of people through Medicaid expansion and the exchanges who are getting insurance and pretty good, you know, reasonably. Not, we all know the problems with these plans. But if you get really sick, you got protection. And you did, and particularly if you're low income and you're getting these subsidies because these subsidies, these cost-sharing subsidies, they, they're, they're, they're being paid in a really convoluted way, but people are still getting that help. And, you know, we could spit, sit here for a week saying all the things wrong with the market and all the things wrong with the plans. But we also saw last year people don't want to give them up. They want them improved. They don't want to give them up. And there's a need there. And that's why it survived politically. And that's why I think all of us expect it to be around next year. What about the the things that the administration has done this year or the very end of last year and this year, you know, trying to create, trying to allow the creation of health plans or some some cases not health plans, ways to cover some health costs that could end up taking the healthier people out of this individual market, association health plans, short-term plans. I mean, is that sort of a bigger threat to the individual market than not having a mandate penalty? Senators, some senators think so. Um, And yeah, are trying to sound the alarm about the um, short-term plans and the association health plans as a big threat, a big potential threat to the market that could draw a lot of the younger, healthier people away into these cheap, bare-bones, skimpy, don't cover that much plans. Um, And they're also concerned about sort of the misleading, fraudulent aspect of these plans, which has been an issue in many states. People buying plans thinking that they'll cover more than they actually do. And so there's there's some concern and some states are working on, well, can we mandate that the plans do cover certain things? Can we mandate that they have more transparency and disclosure? Um, Or can we, you know, ban them all together, or can we limit them back to only three months? There's a lot going or on. Or if you're Iowa or Idaho, can we make Go them nuts. more available? Yeah. <laughs> can we, yeah. But I think what we <laughs> don't steroids. know, I mean, if you talk to the insurers, they will tell you that um, the insurance industry believes that these skinny alternatives will be very damaging to the exchanges. I don't think we know, because we've been surprised by lots of things before. Because what we don't know is it somebody leaving a subsidized plan in the exchange where they may not be paying all that much for a skimpier plan, or will it be the people who are sitting on the sidelines who are not getting insured? A lot of the younger, healthier people are still uninsured. Um, We don't know who 
if anyone is, I mean, someone will buy these plans. We don't know how many people will buy these plans and whether they are from the exchange population, from the uninsured population, or from the off-exchange population, some of whom are really have these huge bills, as, as you know, we've discussed, and, and don't want to pay $20,000 or whatever, and, and would, would go for take their chances and go for something skimpier. Right. If you put okay. repeal into sort of two crude buckets, I feel like there were two main things that it was trying to do, these legislative plans. One was to change Medicaid. We're back to, to buckets. To, yeah, we're back to buckets. <laughs> to, to pull back the Medicaid expansion and to reduce the long-term federal expenditure on Medicaid for all the populations that it's That's served. right. It, it's important to remember that, that the Medicaid changes were not just to undo the expansion in the Affordable Care Act. The Medicaid exchanges were to cap federal spending on Medicaid. That's way beyond what the what was in the Affordable Care Act. So that has been unsuccessful and would still require legislation, and there seems to be quite a lot of political opposition to that. Then the other piece of the repeal in the legislative sense, and you know, these details were being haggled over for sure. But the idea was that they that Republicans wanted there to be a more kind of robust market for insurance where there were fewer regulations on what kinds of plans were being offered. And so people could choose, you know, in the in the the lingo, the choose the plan that was right for them. That they would didn't have to buy this one size fits all, super comprehensive Obamacare plan that covered maternity benefits and prescription drugs and other things, but that instead they could buy a plan that was more narrowly tailored to their needs and that perhaps would be more affordable and that the goal of affordability was really important and they want to strip away regulations. So one thing that I think is really interesting about the dynamic that we're looking at for next year is that I think in some ways the combination of regulatory changes that the Trump administration has is pushing through, they've not finalized them yet, and the repeal of the individual mandate mean that we're looking actually at a world that is not terribly different from some of these legislative proposals that were talked about in Congress. And uh, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine wrote a really nice essay for The New York Times actually a few weeks ago really laying this out and kind of crystallizing it in my mind. But essentially what we're going to look at is there's going to be no penalty for not having insurance. So if you're someone who does not want to have insurance or you want to buy something that's not really insurance but maybe provides you with some kind of financial protections associated with your health care needs, that will be okay. If you want to buy an Obamacare plan, it's going to be expensive, but it's going to have all the bells and whistles, and that will continue to exist. Pre-existing conditions, people will be able to get in there if they can afford it. And then if you're someone who wants to buy a skimpy plan that doesn't cover uh, a bunch of medications that other people use that doesn't cover maternity benefits that doesn't adhe- doesn't have uh, that has a lifetime limit or an annual limit it doesn't adhere to the various Obamacare rules that is going to be available for you too and it's going to be a much more segmented market and it's going to be different and I think we are all going to be writing about what the consequences are of those changes but I think that if all of these things get finalized and we kind of enter the world that we think we're entering into next year for people who buy their own insurance, it's going to look remarkably like what some of these Republican legislative plans would have looked like if they had been passed into law. In some states, right? We don't know. I mean, there'll, yeah, be, but, there'll be a know, lot that, of states. Part, right. part of a lot of these plans, the, if you remember the, the legislative right. plans, is they were really emphasizing state flexibility. And so what they really wanted were these state waivers where states could choose to eliminate regulations. And the understanding was always that others would not eliminate them. Right. So, and some I, might do single payer. And well, I think that hasn't happened. I think that's what Easier we're, said than done. I think that's yeah. what we're going going to see is we're going to see some states really tightening up and basically taking the Obamacare rules and making them into state rules so that kind of all of the existing protections are preserved within a certain geography. And then I think we're going to see other states where they're really going to sort of open their arms to this new liberalization of what can be called insurance. So I want to talk really briefly about the stakeholders, um, sort of Congress, the administration, 
uh, the health industry, particularly health insurers, and the public. I mean, who's going to sort of play the biggest role going forward in the next year or so? I'm, I'm guessing probably not Congress, right? Well, the politicians are in a bind, right? Because the base still expects it. So so can... Expects a repeal. Expects, they still want to get rid of it. So... Can the Republicans, I mean, we've seen Trump sort of test driving this message. He has said, we got rid of the individual mandate, so that's basically repeal of Obamacare. And in the sense, was it the most, seen as the most onerous, it's gone. So, or it'll be gone next January. So can Republicans say, you know, we're, we're getting you these alternatives. It's not clear how quickly they'll be in the market. It's going to take a little while longer. I don't know that they'll be there before the November elections. Um we're giving you these these more affordable alternatives. We got rid of that horrible, evil mandate. We did it. So, I mean, that's the test for them. It's it's a political message. And how much are they able to say we fulfilled our promise or we came close enough that you should reelect us and elect more of us and we'll finish the job? And how much are they really going to be able to move on? I mean, you know, we have, you know, you've all heard me say this all the time. We have the 24-second news cycle. You know, what are we going to be talking about in November? I don't know. So Trump never articulated a vision. I mean, we used to call it TBD care. The, the, and we also don't, I mean, we, we, I see the message that he hopes to, I think I see the message that he hopes, which is done. <laughs> We did it. Right. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Um, I I would say that even if Republicans roared back into power with larger majorities in Congress than they currently hold in 2018. Which seems unlikely. Which which seems unlikely right now. I still think that the urgency is sort of gone. And there are a couple of reasons. But I think an important one is. They won't have 60 votes. They're still stuck. They already repealed the individual mandate which I think is the most unpopular part of Obamacare. I always thought about it as sort of this unloved mascot for Obamacare. It was like this, you know, they bring <laughs> it out in the really front, ugly. get the get the crowd riled up. <laughs> really ugly um, puppy. <laughs> um, There's that, a cartoon there. <laughs> like, that's gone. So what's left is we want to take away money. Protections that, and subsidies. <laughs> things people like. Well, but then I think on protections, you know, I think that there are a lot of Republicans who really legitimately feel that Obamacare overregulated insurance. And they kind of tied people's – they tied insurers' hands and prevented them from being creative. And they tied individuals' hands by saying you have to buy insurance, but also you have to buy the kind of insurance that we think right. you need. And the regulations that have come out of the Trump administration are going to allow a lot more liberalization of what kinds of insurance is going to be sold in many states. So that reason to do it is gone. And then there's this technical reason. We were talking about the CBO before. But getting rid of the individual mandate, it turns out, saves a lot of money. Because if fewer people have insurance, then the government is spending less dollars to provide that insurance. Right, it's for exactly them. the opposite of what you would think. Because you would think, oh well, people aren't paying the penalty, so you, we would lose money. But people, in order to people aren't receiving people, subsidies, right, so we exactly. save money. Right? And the subsidies are way more expensive than the the penalties. penalties. So I think it actually becomes harder to repeal Obamacare because it, it's just like the math is much harder now. So you have. You, Does Congress eventually have to do something to fix it then? Um, so the the thing with the, the repeal battle that dragged out for so long is at some point it started to seem to me that the best thing for them politically is to always keep promising that they're going to keep trying and voting on it but not actually do it. Because, to repeal. Yes, because then they don't have to face the consequences of what would actually happen if – Tens of millions of people lost their insurance. But it's politically popular to say, keep donating to us, keep voting for us. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And keeping that sort of 
flame alive um, going forward. I, so I, I believe that they will keep having some show votes and maybe some more chipping away that we've seen. But not these votes about shoring up the... I don't think so. I think they missed their biggest opportunity on the omnibus for that. But they could give states more flexibility to do some of the shoring up. That's, I mean, they they could go that route if they chose. Administratively or in 1332 waivers. Yeah. Right. The administration mm-hmm. could do that. Right. All right. Last chance. We're going to go around the table. What's the one thing that you're going to be looking for as, as a hint to what finally becomes of the Affordable Care Act? I think we need to look at what happens in states. And, you know, for... Many years uh, before Obamacare, covering health care really meant covering state action because states had so much power over what the health insurance markets looked like, both public and private in in their states. And then there was like this moment we were all looking at states again after the Supreme Court said that the Medicaid expansion in Obamacare was optional. But I think for the last few years, this has really been largely a federal story. And that is not the case anymore. The federal government is essentially saying to states do what you want. You want to submit a Medicaid waiver that's going to impose new restrictions on who can get Medicaid beyond what's been allowed before, we are going to seriously consider that. If you want to uh, impose a lot of regulations on insurance, create your own individual mandate or do other interesting things, we don't have a lot of power to prevent that. And I really think that what we're going to see going forward is the existing divergence between how states deal with this issue is going to get even wider. And I think we'll see some kind of spectacular failures and maybe some interesting successes. But the kind of I think there's a lot that's going to happen locally. Alice, what are you looking at? Um, yeah, I, I I agree with Margot that the action is going to be on the state level, but it interacts with the federal level in that they still hold the cards and what waivers they're going to approve. And the jury is still kind of out on how far they will let states go in flouting uh, what is left of the Affordable Care Act and also whether they are interested in only approving waivers that sort of erode Uh, what's there or if they also are interested in improving waivers for shoring up and reinsurance and and, um, these things that are sort of will fortalize the... Stabilize the market in ways that Congress doesn't seem to want to do. Exactly. Or or even go further if states want to go in a more progressive direction, whether the Trump administration will give their blessing with that. That jury's still out on that. Joanne? Well, one, I, I do agree that states are important. We've just hired another state reporter, so I have proof that I believe it's important. What a, what a great job. <laughs> but um, the other thing is the insurers. I mean, are, are they going to stick to it? Are they, are they going? I mean, we saw participation drop a lot over the last two years. We've seen some new players, you know, they haven't they haven't spread their wings. They've spread like a fraction of a wing uh, into new states. I mean, will the Centines and the Oscars... Um, and the other ones that are still playing, will you know, will they grow? Will will some of the um, the Humana WalMarts, <laughs> you know, will these new whatever they're going to look like step back in? Um, it, it's going to you know you you can't have a robust market without insurers, so we have to watch what the insurers are going to do. It's we'll have some signs in the next few weeks as they start doing their preliminary rates, but we won't really know for a couple more months. Yeah, I'm with Joanne. I'm kind of watching the insurance market, particularly the nonprofits. They've been the ones that have held on. You know that is that is their mandate. They have community missions. You know the 
the for-profit ones don't make right. yeah, don't make most of their money in the individual market. But the Blues made money last yeah. year, and yes. for the first time, the, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, most of them across the country, they were in the black in the exchanges. We did a um, you know we did a state by state analysis of that, and the Council of Economic Advisors did shortly. There we scoop them. Um, <laughs> shout out to Paul Demko, who always amazes me. Um, you know, so that's different. I mean, the insurers did make money last year. They didn't make gobs of it, but they weren't before they were losing gobs, which is the technically correct term. Ask the CBO. All right, so so yes, there'll be there'll be met much more to chew over. Um, I think we're going to stop there. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Alice Olstein. At Sanger Cats. We'll be back in your feed next week with the latest news. In the meantime, be healthy.